Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Kenny. It's good to see you tonight. Welcome to Good Friday service. You know, this week was Passion Week. The week before Easter, and the body of Christ around the world. I guess it kind of depends on what denomination you belong to. But Christians around the world, you know, they set aside this week to specifically remember remember the last week of Jesus' life and his journey to the cross, his suffering, his death, and his glorious resurrection. And today is Good Friday of that Passion Week. And so tonight, we want to specifically turn our attention to the day that Christ was crucified. And so um, my hope, uh, my prayer, is just that God in his great mercy, that he would meet us again as we turn our hearts to him, as we think about again and reflect on his death for us, and just by his grace, he might speak tonight. And so please join me in prayer. Okay. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for your undying love for us. You say there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And Lord, we want to understand and receive that love. And we just know, God, that it is by your grace that you open our eyes, that you open our hearts, that we actually receive your abundant and unending, committed, steadfast love for us. And so we thank you, and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. When I look out, I know that many of you have been attending church for a long time, and so you've heard many times, probably over two or three hundred times, right, about the death of Jesus for you. But tonight... Um, I, want us, I want to ask you, again, what comes to your heart and mind when you reflect on the death, and re- the death specifically, the death and suffering of Jesus for you? Okay. I know it's not something that we, uh, like, like you might hear it, and it's not something you deeply think about, but in those times, um, those times of where you are looking to Christ more. Maybe it's in a song, or maybe it's in a time alone with him. And his death for you hits you. Right? How do you receive that? How do you experience that? Tonight, I want us to just think about how we experience Jesus' death. And then I'm going to look at how the disciples experienced his death in Jesus himself. And then I want us to just take a look at those two experiences and, and take away something from them. But when I reflect on Jesus' suffering and death, the very first thing I see is exactly what uh, 
I, I, I forgot the pastor's name that was up here again. My mind is like, Jer- Jer- Jeremy. <laughs> Can you tell I'm not thinking right now? My, my mind is like going all over the place. I love what Pastor Jeremy said, because the very first thing I think of when I think of Jesus' suffering and death for me is I think of his great, great love for me, right? I think of his love for me. When I see him on the cross, when I'm praising him for giving his life for me, I experience his love. Not only do I experience his love, but when I think of his death for me, I think of his forgiveness, his complete forgiveness of my sin, right? And the peace that comes because of that. There are many times uh, I, I share in my prayer, in the class that I teach on prayer, now, one of my favorite passages is from Romans chapter 5. Right. And in Romans chapter 5, the very first thing that Paul says is he's talking about, again, what happens when we place our faith in Christ. Is that he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been declared right with God by faith, he says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When I know that I'm forgiven of my sin, there is peace that comes into my soul. When I'm praying, there are so many things that happen throughout the day or throughout the week that when I come to the Lord, there's just a lot of things that maybe I've not done right, things I wish I had done better, longings in my heart that I wish I had changed And one of the things that I hang on to is that when I come before the Lord, he says, with you, through Christ, you are right with me. You are right. And so we are at peace. I see all that you've done. I see all that you've not done. And as you come before me this morning to talk with me, relax. In Christ, you're forgiven. He has died for you. Amen? Amen. The other thing I think of when I think of Christ and his death for me is that I have hope that sin's authority over my, sin's authority over my will, my desires, and my ways of thinking and feeling are broken. Right? In Romans 6, 1 through 10, it says, The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, this is Jesus, he lives to God. And then, Paul says this, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death for me means that sin's authority over my will, my emotions, attitudes, habits have been crushed. I am free in him. I am free. And the last thing I think of when I think of Jesus' death for me is I think that I am his. He has bought me with a price. I am forever his. I am no longer a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am a saint. I am his and his forever. And so when I reflect on Jesus' death for me, right, what it elicits, and when you think of it too, it probably elicits gratitude. It elicits hope. It elicits love. And it moves us 
to want to surrender and to give our lives to Christ. And it moves us to want to worship. We want to sing of the goodness and the love of God. And so when we look at our worship songs, right, we lift up the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Right? We sing about his precious blood that Jesus spilled on our behalf, that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. Right? And we sing verses about how Jesus was unjustly accused and how he was beaten, mocked, and scorned how he was executed and gave us life. And we do that not because we're weirdos, right? I think of sometimes of someone who comes in to our sanctuary, and if they would hear, they know nothing about Christ. And they hear, they hear our words, we're singing about his death. Again, how he was beaten, mocked, and scorned. Our hands are raised up, and it might seem strange But it's not, because we see the bigger picture. Christ's death for us is a death of love, of compassion, of sacrifice, and of hope. We see Jesus' suffering in his death as one of God's most glorious acts of love and mercy for us. Not because we loved him or even believed in him, but because he loved us first. And so when we look at the cross today, our hearts are stirred with gratitude, love, and praise, and we sing with our hearts, Oh, that old rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me, Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. The cross for us moves us. However, when I think about how Jesus' disciples saw or experienced the cross back then, how they saw his death, it is nothing like how we see it today, right? It's nothing like it. Of course, we see all that he did. We have all the testimony of the New Testament and all the meaning behind his suffering and death. And so, of course, we see it completely different. But I want to go back to that day because I think there's something that we take away and that we miss when we forget that day. That first song um, we're singing uh, I was singing it, and I thought, Lord, when I see you, when I think about the day that you cr- were crucified, you know, does that make me tremble? Does that make me tremble? Because on the day that he died, it made people tremble. And so I want to look at the day Jesus was crucified. And his followers and the disciples and Jesus. So on the day he was crucified, I don't think any of the disciples were feeling God's love for them. Nor were they feeling his hope 
or his peace or his gratitude, right? Rather, they were scattered, they were confused, and they were filled with sorrow. When we read the scriptures, we see that all but John and Peter abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gave them the opportunity to run, and most of them did. And from the gospel accounts, it's only John present at Jesus' crucifixion. Out of his 12 ones, his beloved ones, whom Jesus poured his life into, only one remained at the cross. It doesn't say where the other, um, actually where the others were. It says that some were watching from a distance, but we have no idea. In John 16, John told, Jesus told his disciples that they would all be scattered, each to his own home, and that they would leave him all alone. And so I just imagine that they were probably just not there. As for Peter, the scriptures tell us that after the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And so at the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter was somewhere lost in bitter remorse, ruined over his cowardice and his disloyalty to Jesus. Judas... In Matthew 27, 3-5, it says that Judas, his betrayer, when he had saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, what use is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed And he went and he hanged himself. At the crucifixion of Jesus, Judas was haunted with guilt. He was completely destroyed over his betrayal of Jesus. And I don't know the timing of his death, but it could have been at the very same time as Jesus' crucifixion. And as for the many women who followed Jesus... His mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and others, they were full of sorrow. They were heartbroken as they helplessly wept and lamented and watched Jesus being berated, ridiculed, mocked by soldiers and self-righteous and by the self-righteous religious hypocrites. On the day that Jesus died for his followers and his disciples, It was a horrific time. And it was not only dreadful for his disciples, but it was also an excruciating time for Jesus. Again, in the Gospels, we read that Jesus was deeply troubled and bothered when he let his disciples know that one of them would betray him. I think what's, I think very comforting and also a mystery to me is that Jesus could know what is happening, right? He knew somebody would betray him. He knew he would go to the cross. And yet in the mystery of his humanity, 
he still is troubled. He's burdened. Why is he troubled when he tells his disciples that one of you will betray me? He's troubled because he loves them. He invested three years into them. He cares for them. And so although he can know one of them will betray me, it breaks his heart. And so he says he's deeply troubled when he tells his disciples that one of them would betray him. He says he was troubled in spirit. And in John, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's emphasizing this. He's mourning over this. One of you is going to turn against me. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark, Mark writes that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to Peter and James and John, My soul is very sorrowful. It's overwhelmed with sorrow. Didn't Jesus know what was going to happen? Yes, he did. And yet in his humanity, he's still experiencing all the fear and the hardship and the truth, too, that God's judgment would be falling upon him for our sake. But he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain and watch here. And then Luke, Luke writes, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jesus was so weak, so overcome that an angel came to strengthen him. And it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Again, we see a man overcome, hurting, suffering, and yet he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Upon all the emotional, the psychological, the physical pain, as I mentioned before, is the weight of God's judgment for the sins that would be put upon him. And so when I think of Jesus and how he experienced the cross and what it was like, I know for me now I'm so grateful, I'm filled with love, but at that moment I'm thinking he's suffering. It was a dreaded day for the disciples and it was a day of anguish for our Savior. And yet, and yet, in this literal darkness... When I say literal darkness, it's because, and you, probably, and you know this, I'm just going to mention it again, that at the crucifixion of Christ, right, in Mark it says he was crucified at 9 a.m. But then at 12 noon, it says that the sun failed. It went to night. It was dark across the land. And from 12 to 3, it's dark. People try to explain this, right? They say maybe an eclipse, but an eclipse doesn't last that long. They say maybe this huge sandstorm. I don't know. But all we know is that miraculously, 
as God's judgment was upon our Lord for our sins, darkness for three hours. And now if I'm standing and if I'm like the religious leaders or the Roman soldiers or the crowds and I'm watching and it goes dark for three hours, either I'm thinking this guy was bad, right? He's getting it. Or I'm just confused. But in this moment of literal darkness, God does his greatest work of salvation through our Lord. You know, there are seven phrases or seven words that when you read the Gospels uh, and you put them all together, there are seven words or phrases, last words of Jesus from the cross. And the last four come after enduring this darkness. And the one that I read today is the one that I think moves me the most. It's the one that hits me. And that is when Jesus says, it is finished. When you look at the chronology, again, of Jesus' death on the cross, at the beginning, before the darkness hits at noon, he says, both Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He turns to one of the criminals and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then in the passage that I read, he says to his mother and to John, Woman, look, your son. He says that to Mary and to John. He says, Behold, your mother. And then it goes dark. And from 12 to 3, There's no words from Jesus. There's nothing said. And then they say the next words are out of his mouth, or that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I'm thirsty, and then it is finished. And then the very last one is, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. When I was looking at these last seven words, in, in Matthew and in Mark, it says, when Jesus says, well, I think it's in Mark 15, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He specifically says, he says it, he yells it with a loud cry. And in Luke, Luke writes that when Jesus says, Father, into my, thy hands I commit my spirit, again, he specifically says, with a loud cry. But they say nothing about when he says, I'm thirsty and it is finished. And so this is my, as I imagine this moment, the judgment of God upon our sin, upon Christ, is happening within this darkest hour. And when it's finally At its completion, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And since John, the author of this gospel, was at the cross, 
I believe he hears, I'm thirsty. And then he hears Jesus say, it is finished. And then at the end, he yells, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. Now, like I said, I think this last, his last words of it is finished move me the most. And the reason why they do, the reason why they hit me the hardest, okay, is that when he says it is finished, he says this in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, when it was done, when it was completed, when it was accomplished. That's when he said, I thirst. He gets the sour wine. And after he receives the wine, he says again, it is finished. And he says it quietly. And what he's saying, right, is that this hour, this moment, in greatest weakness and in sorrow, God is finishing his perfect and ultimate plan of salvation for the world. He is doing his greatest work at Jesus' greatest point of weakness. He is accomplishing all that he had set out to do from the beginning of time. We're talking, it is finished, it's done. All that has to be done for us to know Christ, to come into relationship with him, to walk with him through this life, all the way to the very end, until we see him, it is done. It's finished. And he says that at the very point of his weakest moment. God's ultimate work of salvation is done. I love this. Because again, it shows us the pattern of Jesus' work. It shows us the pattern of how Jesus works in our lives. Jesus doesn't work with our strengths with where we feel confident and powerful. Because where we feel confident and powerful, we rely upon ourselves. We look to ourselves. Jesus works in our weakness, in our failures, in our helplessness, in our neediness, because in that place we look to him. And Jesus' greatest weakness is he sets the example. He sets the example. And Paul, the apostle, he knew this well. A familiar passage he knows from 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul was struggling, again, which he, which he calls a, a thorn in his flesh, a burden, a struggle. Here, I'll read it.
He says, there was a thorn given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, self-reliant, not looking to the Lord. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace, my mercy is sufficient for you. And then he says this, my power is made perfect in weakness. That is the way of Christ. That is power. His transforming power, his hope is made perfect in our weakness. And so he says this, and Paul says this. He goes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will be glad. When I come up with a, with a challenge in which I do not have the patience, I do not have the ability, I do not have the love to give, he goes, at that point... I will boast in that weakness because I know that the way of Christ is power through weakness. It says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. The moment of Christ's death on the cross for you and I was the moment in which God was working his most power and his greatest love and his greatest work for all the world. And so when we remember Christ's death today, and again, when I remember and when I'm thinking, I'm filled with strength, with love, with gratitude. The thing I need to remember at the same time is that it is in weakness, right? It is in my weakness that he does his greatest work. It was in Christ's weakness and death that he brought us life. And it's going to be the same for you and I as we follow him. You might think, man, that, that sounds like a bummer, right? But it is. He says, no, and it is. <laughs> but he says that he has actually come to bring us true life, fullness of life. And the reason why that feels like such a bummer is because it seems so counterintuitive to the sinful soul, to selfishness, to actually give myself away. To actually give and to work within my weaknesses, to face my hardships and trust that Christ is going to bring new life. God's ultimate work of salvation was accomplished at the peak of Jesus' weaknesses. He gave us salvation, forgiveness, new life. And God's greatest work and accomplishments through your life is going to be met and, and carried out through the same way for his glory and for his honor. 
Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, it is in your death that we find life. We find forgiveness. We find hope. And that, Lord God, will be in our weaknesses as we face our own sin, as we face our own disbelief. our own limitedness, our weakness. Lord Jesus, that you can bring forgiveness and new life. Lord God, we come before you tonight and we ask that as we remember your death and resurrection, your death for us, see, God, that you are inviting us into your death too. Not that we might be overcome with sorrow and burden, but that we might have new life. So thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.